Good morning and welcome to Rising. Unfortunately, we have to open with some grim news today. Brianna, why don't you fill the audience in on the situation at Michigan State University? Well, a gunman opened fire in an academic hall at Michigan State on Monday night, injuring five people and killing three others. Officials confirmed that the suspect, a 43-year-old Anthony McRae, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He had no known ties to the university. News Nation's Ashley Banfield spoke to a few students who were hunkered down in a dorm room before officials confirmed the gunman had died. Here's a little of their exchange. We were up actually in the North neighborhood around, uh, around the Union, and we had planned to go eat there, but made a uh, last minute decision just just cause to go to uh, the Steiner Phillip uh, uh, dining hall. Yeah, yeah. And as we get to the Snyder Phillips dining hall, we're eating about 10 minutes in, we start getting texts. We see people are, there's a shooting, we're getting alerts. Everyone's somewhat panicking, but everyone, no one knows if it's true yet. Authorities are trying to get to the bottom of why McRae targeted the university. Surveillance footage showed him late Monday near campus grounds. Now the Detroit News reports this morning that McRae was sentenced to 18 months in state prison in November 2019 after being convicted of possessing a loaded firearm in a vehicle. He was released from supervision in May of 2021. And I'm reading in the Detroit News that police have been called to his house before because of the sounds of gunshots um, from some kind of target practice going on. So, you know, we, we don't, it's too early to make much of this yet, other than it's a very sad situation. Um, not obvious why he might have targeted the university or, you know, what is going on here. Uh, someone who has served prison time for a felony gun possession should not be able to procure a firearm subsequently. Uh, so if police were called to his home subsequently, and saw that he had a gun or was using a gun, he should have been rearrested. So we'll have to see whether this is one of the, uh, another one of those cases where the suspect was known to law enforcement to an extent that should have actually prompted some earlier action before it came to this. Obviously, we don't want to, I don't want to condemn before knowing more, but that has been a pattern in many of these mass shooting cases. Yeah, I mean, some, some people might disagree with you. I mean, folks feel very strongly about gun rights so gun ownership being a really fundamental right. Most other rights, just because you break the law, don't necessarily strip you of those rights. And I'm sure there are many gun owners who would argue that, you know, he was arrested, he served his time for, I, I presume, having a loaded vehicle that was not legal in his firearm. Presumably that's why he was arrested and he got out. Maybe he should be allowed to, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe he can, you know, be licensed to, to buy a gun again. It's not clear how he procured this gun, whether it was legally or illegally. Um, all of those details will come out, and I'm sure they will shape the narrative around what can be done to prevent tragedies like this. But again, it's hard to get around the effects of having such a prevalence of guns in the, in the culture, even if you think it's a net good. Ultimately, it's, other countries are not having these kind of situations in such a recurring fashion. I mean, somebody noted that in one of the crowd shots of the kids 
on campus, one of the kids was wearing a T-shirt indicating that they had survived a shooting at their high school. And now here they are, I guess only a few years later in college, having to endure the same kind of experience. So I, I would like to say that this is one of those moments that will really make us sit back and, and take a really hard look at what we're doing and how we're structuring society and why people feel so disaffected or whatever it is that's driving them to these things and how they're able to get access to the means to create these kind of tragedies. But we've had so many of them before. You and I have sat here at this table discussing so many of these events. I'm a little skeptical about any given event being a tipping point of any sort. Yeah, it's terrible. I, I have a connection to Michigan State University. My brother went there. My sister-in-law went there. Both my parents went there. Um, so it's you know it does it jars you, uh, especially when you 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 know the the campus is known to you. You know people um, who who did live there. So um, yeah, and now I feel I feel strongly about. Uh, Second Amendment rights, gun rights. I, I do not personally feel strongly about um, people convicted of gun crime still being able to have mm. access to guns. I don't know if that makes me an outlier or, or, or if that's atypical for how supporters of the Second Amendment feel about this, but I, I would have no problem restricting Does the, the nature of the crime, do you think, matter? Among... You know, obviously, I would say someone who kills somebody or threatens mm. someone, holds somebody hostage, things like that, using a gun. I mean, I gun. think if the crime involves a gun... It's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there are people who get cited for violations for shooting guns in areas they're not supposed to, hunting violations, having the car like this person loaded when it apparently wasn't supposed to be loaded by the rules in his car. You know, the kind of violations that are very serious in the same way that certain driving violations are very serious because you can take somebody's life very easily with these machines, but doesn't necessarily mean you're never allowed to drive again once you've served your time, for instance. Oh. I, I'm not making yeah. a case for this, by the way. I'm just, I'm just. Well, right, because I, I mean, if people, if people support greater restrictions on firearms, or think our society would be safer if there were more restrictions on firearms, wouldn't the first step be enforcing those restrictions against people? who have committed some crime involving a firearm, wouldn't no, no, that help us get us the logic. A... I guess I'm just asking whether or not the nature of the violation matters. Because you can, you can imagine all kind of fairly de minimis violations that guns are serious, but so are so is driving drunk, so is driving recklessly. Cars are also serious. So you can imagine a kind of de minimis violation that doesn't necessarily, many people would argue, doesn't necessarily mean you should never be able to own a gun again. And I guess what I'm trying to get at the bottom of is, I think that sometimes when we're faced with a tragedy like this, we think, well, the issue is just that the wrong person, you know, it's, it, we should be able to predict who the right and wrong people are based on past behavior, whether or not they've been, you know, flagged by a red flag law, whether or not they've been in the criminal justice system before. But, you know, I don't think that certain gun rights advocates are wrong when they say having been in the system for whatever reason doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to access guns or have various rights? And shouldn't it be more closely, you know, narrowly tailored to actually get to the bottom of it? And it's just, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, whether or not the, you know, the race of the victim affects how the dialogue is and whether gun rights owners come to this person's defense or whether or not the nature of the tragedy means that nobody comes to this person's defense. You know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Because 18, I mean, this is not, it doesn't seem to be a, a situation where someone was let out early. This was not a case where we could talk about this as a bail reform issue. It seems like he served his 18 months in prison. He got out. Isn't what we believe is that people are they pay their their their, their time they they for the but crime I, and but I don't under, but then I don't understand like 
I, I, I want to support, uh, protect the right of law-abiding citizens, most of whom handle firearms responsibly, to do so. And then people on the other side of the issue say, well, it's dangerous. We have too many guns. Look at our country has a problem with guns that other countries don't. I, I accept all that. Like, okay, can we, maybe we can meet in the middle in enforcing restrictions on guns for people who have had run-ins with the law, specifically involving guns, seems like, like if we're going, in fact, if we're going to enforce broad gun control anyway, mm -hmm. that's also going to involve enforcing it against people who have had incidents with guns. So why wouldn't we yeah, start Robbie, there, I, I would say? I guess I'm just pushing back on this idea of incidents with guns. So for example, there are states, you know, Mm -hmm. you, sometimes you're allowed to drive with a loaded gun in your car. Sometimes you're not. Like the, there's state I mean, by state I'm laws. Sure there, I'm sure there are BS convictions over exactly. Right. What that, you that's just said. what I'm sure. saying. So now, in yeah. retrospect, obviously, I think any of us would want for police to have intervened, no matter what, if it was going to yeah. prevent this kind of a tragedy. But a priori, from a, like a civil libertarian perspective, you know, how do you predict what is an overreach in saying someone who maybe forgot to unload their gun coming home from the shooting range and went to jail for it should never own a gun again? You know, is that a world we actually want to live in? I mean, you know, to be is clear, it, I mean, I'm a progressive, so I have all kinds of different thoughts and feelings about how I would structure gun laws, but I'm just saying from the perspective of many people who are engaged in this debate and want there to be more expansive freedoms for, with respect to guns. Right, I would say, but I, I would see that as difficult. an argument for having no restrictions on guns in any case. So he would never have been arrested in the first place if, yeah. if there hadn't been a law preventing him from driving yeah. loaded. So then in that case, he never would have been flagged by anything, and there would have been no opportunity but for intervention. I'm saying that doesn't sound like, to me, what people who support gun control actually want. They want restrictions on the guns. I mean, yes, they, they, they So do. they need to be enforced. If they're not being enforced at all, then it's not what's the what's, point. What's the law? What's the law do you think? I mean, so we don't, so first of all, I don't. Neither of us know. I'm sorry, this is difficult. But neither of us know whether or not it was illegal for him to have. We don't know how he got this gun. Whether it was a legally purchased mm -hmm. gun, whether it was an illegally ob uh, obtained gun, whether it was his gun. Right. Whether or not once you're convicted for what he was convicted of, driving with a loaded gun, you are precluded actually from getting a gun again. And then whether you, we think as a society, you right. should be precluded for that kind of a, a gun-related crime. These are all, I think, relevant. My understanding is asking. you generally are precluded. Maybe maybe it varies state to state, et cetera. I'm sure it varies to some degree state to state. But my understanding is you're generally precluded from owning a firearm subsequently to in, any felony or I don't know just any felony or gun related. It's probably not any. It might be any felony. Mm. I, I, it must vary. Mm. Um, interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Well, well, lots more to learn about this situation. For sure. And I look forward to hearing about what's on your radar coming up next, Robbie. All right, Robbie. What's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, the Global Disinformation Index, or the GDI, is a British organization that evaluates news outlets' susceptibility to disinformation. The ultimate aim is to persuade online advertisers to blacklist dangerous publications and websites. One such publication, according to GDI's extremely dubious criteria, is Reason Magazine, which is the publication I write for when I'm not doing this job. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. I hear you laughing, Brianna. At least according to GDI's recent report on disinformation, which notes that the organization exists to help, quote, advertisers and the ad tech industry in assessing the reputational and brand risk when advertising with online media outlets and to help them avoid financially supporting disinformation online. 
The U.S. government evidently values this work. In fact, the State Department subsidizes it. The National Endowment for Democracy, a state-supported nonprofit that has received $330 million in taxpayer dollars, contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the GDI's budget, according to investigation by the Washington Examiner's Gabe Kaminsky. It's an excellent piece. You should check it out. Now, should the State Department spend public money to help a foreign-based organization pressure advertisers to punish U.S. media companies? I think the answer, quite obviously, is no. The First Amendment prohibits the U.S. government from censoring private companies for good reason, and government actors should not seek to evade the First Amendment's protections in order to censor indirectly. The Washington Examiner, which was included as well on GDI's list of risky media outlets, confirmed that it has in fact lost out on revenue due to advertisers heeding GDI's federally subsidized concerns. An internal GDI memo singles out Amazon for purchasing ad space on an Examiner article that allegedly included right-wing misinformation. But GDI evidently considers reason, again, that's the magazine I write for, even more threatening than the Washington Examiner. Reason is listed among the 10 absolute riskiest online news sources. Sounds kind of badass. <laughs> Alongside the New York Post, Real Clear Politics, The Daily Wire, The Blaze, One America News Network, The Federalist, Newsmax, The American Spectator, and The American Conservative. Uh, almost all of those uh, conservative outlets. Now, I should note that The Hill, which is the news organization that we work for here at Rising, they were also evaluated by GDI, but its overall listing wasn't available available anywhere that I could find in GDI's actual report, so I have no idea what the ultimate assessment was, just that they were not on the 10 worst or 10 best list. How's that for transparency? <laughs> now, Reason's high-risk rating, on the other hand, was chalked up to three factors in the report. Quote, no information regarding authorship attribution, pre-publication fact-checking or post-publication corrections processes, or policies to prevent disinformation in its comment section. So they weren't actually accusing us of having any actual disinformation on the website. And it's not clear precisely what they mean. The organization did not respond to my request for comments clarification. But contrary to what they suggest, uh, the, authors at, the authorship of Reason articles is clearly communicated to readers. Reason writers link to their sources frequently and reliably, and they note uh, corrections whenever appropriate. When evaluated by a disinformation tracking organization that uses transparent and objective metrics, my magazine has fared much better. NewsGuard is an, evalu is an evaluator that's co-founded by Gordon Krovitz, a former publisher of the Wall Street Journal. NewsGuard gives Reason a perfect score of 100 out of 100 and does not steer advertisers away. NewsGuard also gives the Washington Examiner a score of 92.5 out of 100. In a recent op-ed for The Examiner, Krovitz explained how NewsGuard's processes differ from the opaque blacklisting system preferred by the Global Disinformation Index. Unlike the ratings of news sites done by the entities cited in the Washington Examiner series, Krovitz writes, NewsGuard ratings are done with full transparency and disclosure using only apolitical criteria. Everything is done by humans, including the ratings by our analysts of all the news and information sites that account for 95% of engagement in the United States and the other countries where we operate. Each site gets a score from 0 to 100 based on nine basic criteria of journalistic practice. Unlike others, we don't rely on artificial intelligence. Only human intelligence can be held accountable to be accurate and apolitical. Publishers can also make changes to address our questions. More than one quarter of the sites we've rated, including many conservative sites, have improved their scores by making additional disclosures or otherwise improving their practices after engaging with our analysts. 
Now, as NewsGuard's evaluation makes clear, the magazine I write for is not an unsafe website. And if the Global Disinformation Index is pretending otherwise, then this government-funded hall monitor is the one spreading disinformation. It is also worth noting that GDI ranked the 10 lowest risk online news outlets, which include NPR, The Associated Press, The New York Times, ProPublica, Insider, USA Today, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, The Wall Street Journal, and Huff. Huffington Post, now known as HuffPost. Now many of these publications frequently produce journalism that I find admirable, but they are not immune to disinformation. HuffPost, for example, repeatedly suggested that the New York Post's infamous Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian misdirection. If a disinfo tracking organization wants to loudly proclaim in partisan fashion that advertisers should only use mainstream and liberal news sites, Okay, it has that right. But advertisers should take note of its obvious biases and methodological issues. And regardless, the US government has no business funding it. So I think we found some stuff to cut in the budget, save a little bit of money. What do you think? Yeah, I the think State Department's <laughs> grant to this disinfo tracker of it's, British origin? It's outrageous. And your, your description of them as a hall monitor is right on point. I mean, legacy media has been crazy with bees in its bonnet for years now as there is increased democratization of other kinds of news media because the internet gave the power to people to start their own magazines, not need a printing press, not need all this infrastructure, to not need the go-ahead by people with enormous amounts of capital. And that has created a diffuse media ecosystem with a lot of different kinds of views. Do I agree with all of those views that are out there? Of course not. But have I had cause to read reason articles that are informative and, you know, bolster the kind of libertarian socialist points, frankly, that I'm making from time to time, or just do straight news reporting? Of course. And it's absolutely ridiculous to try to use financial incentives and bully out advertisers in order to basically make sure that there's still a siloed Mm -hmm. you, like uni opinion that exists for people to consume. It's outrageous. Like if I was gonna stand on a high horse, saddle up on a high horse, whatever. I don't know how what, where I'm taking this metaphor. <laughs> Not a rider here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and be be the guy on disinfo. I'm an expert on disinformation. Yeah. My expertise is identifying disinformation in other people. I would be. I would feel like I had to be pretty sure that my yeah. my thing is free of error. And this report I read by this group on on the disinfo in in our publications, uh, it is very unclear as it's as it's structuring these criteria what they mean. Like they said, authorship attribution. I'm like, so I assume that meant. They're saying our articles are not attribute, like don't have authors. Yeah. Like maybe like 10 years ago, we used to run things that had already run in the magazine with, an, with a byline. They would also get added to the website. It would say reason staff. Mm -hmm. But like it was also on the website with the actual, right. it was just kind of a, it was an old website publishing thing. I'm like, is that what they mean? Then I'm looking more closely and it's saying, oh, are they saying we don't, like hyperlink enough, like the authorship of things we're citing are not linked enough because we do link all the time. Mm -hmm. It's so, but you can't tell, and yeah. like you couldn't tell, I couldn't tell what the Hill's ranking was on this thing because, and the Hill was ranked, was evaluated, but because it, they, they and they said everything that was evaluated, but they only listed what the ten best and the ten worst were. Was it a paywall, maybe? No, it was in a report. It's in a PDF. I downloaded. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, when you were going through, I mean, at one point you threw up some uh, screen grab, and it was like the evidence of right wing disinformation. 
you just, you gotta say specifically, do they give any examples of like, this is an article, this is a, a citation that's right-wing disinformation? So they, they had a, not, they had a memo that the Washington Examiner obtained. It was not, I think it was an internal memo, so it was not part of the report, I it was see. not meant to be uh, seen. And basically it was just, it was an opinion piece. It was an opinion piece for the Examiner, making a you know, conservative argument about the transgender movement. I'm sure you would have disagreed with it. I might very well have disagreed with it. But it was an opinion piece. Yeah. It wasn't like trying to launch, like this is news and has some kind of agenda. And, and they, they were flagging, oh, look at this Amazon ad that appears in this. This yeah. is something for you to be wary of. Yeah. This is very and, concerning. And the comments as well. They're, that was the other thing. They were mad at reason because we, our comments are very lightly policed. Uh, you know, if it's really bad down there, maybe we delete something. But usually it's kind of a free-for-all. And it's part of our ethos, ethos yeah. that you get to have a comment section um, where you know it can go off the rails, but that's up to the people participating. So to blame the site for that, I mean, that's kind of a just a contrary philosophical yeah. point of view that they were dinging us for. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's wild. I don't think you're the problem, Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, this sounds outrageous, and I'm glad you reported on it. Great Thank radar. you, Brianna. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Health and environmental concerns continue to mount throughout the American heartland this week after government and railroad officials intentionally released thousands of pounds of vinyl chloride, a known carcinogen, into the atmosphere. Last week's dump and burned controlled release took place in five tanker cars damaged as a result of a 50-car Norfolk Southern freight train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month. Now we're learning three more dangerous chemicals have been leaked as part of that derailment. Here's what one hazardous material specialist told local station WKBN 27 yesterday. We basically nuked a town with chemicals so we could get a railroad open. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency sent a letter to Norfolk Southern stating that ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, ethylexoacrylate, and isobutylene were also in the rail cars that were derailed, breached, or on fire. Caggiano says ethylexoacrylate is especially worrisome. He says it's a carcinogen, and contact with it can cause burning and irritation in the skin and eyes. Breathing it in can irritate the nose, throat, and cause coughing and shortness of breath. Isobutylene is also known to cause dizziness and drowsiness when inhaled. I was kind of surprised that when they quickly told the people they can go back home, but then said if they feel like they want their, uh, their homes tested, uh, they can have them tested. I, I would have far rather they did all the testing. Joining us now to weigh in is News Nation Washington Bureau Chief Mike Vaccara. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Robbie. So what are we learning about uh, the situation on the ground? Obviously, I think there's a lot of understandable concern from the people. Right. And uh, I think many of them feel like this is not being treated with the absolute seriousness it requires. Well, I think it beggars belief when you look at those astonishing pictures from that burn-off that happened earlier last week, uh, that there could be a safe environment for people to return to their homes. You know. Uh, you talked about the three chemicals that the EPA revealed late in this process just a couple of days ago that were also on that train. Uh, but the principal concern initially was vinyl chloride, which causes liver cancer, which is the principal cause of all that burnoff and that enormous toxic cloud that we saw rising over that community of East Palestine in Ohio, just over the Pennsylvania border, about 40 miles west of uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, so a lot of concern to the extent now that local residents have called on local officials to get together and answer some of these questions 
Uh, there's a town hall scheduled there in East Palestine at the high school gymnasium for tomorrow night. In the meantime, again, hard to believe the EPA says there are no levels of concern in the air uh, in terms of any particulate, any carcinogens that might still be floating around. The fallout from this, uh, the literal fallout and now the political fallout uh, stretching here to Washington as the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, is under a great deal of fire for not paying what many believe to be insufficient attention to this situation here. Uh, so the EPA still looking at homes, still concerns, concerns about well water. There is an NTSB, National Tra Transportation Safety Board investigation uh, going on right now, but still a lot of unanswered questions, Brianna and Robbie. Yeah, I think your point about there being such a delay in the response from the Biden administration and Pete Buttigieg in particular has been a real focus in the story here, especially as the news seems to be very transfixed on the Chinese balloons uh, and not at all seem to be wanting to dedicate much time to this ongoing environmental crisis. You mentioned that the EPA has said that apparently there was no air risk uh, or not identified an air risk at this time. But uh, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources has reported thousands of fish uh, dead approximately right. 7.5 miles away. Um, so it, it seems unlikely that there is not going to be a far-reaching environmental consequence and human consequences for these kinds of things. Moreover, folks like uh, David Sirota over at The Lever have been reporting about uh, the choices that were made that could have perhaps prevented an accident like this. Rail companies apparently blocked safety rules in advance of the Ohio, uh, the Ohio derailment. They convinced government officials to repeal break rules and corporate lobbyists watered down hazmat safety regulations that, again, could have created more regulations for carrying hazardous materials that got ratcheted back and were only applied to carrying petroleum and those kinds of things. And I wonder what you make of the conversation around what could have been done. Even the guest um, in the clip that we, the, the inter guy interviewed in the clip that we just played, seemed to indicate that the choice to kind of blow out uh, this giant plume instead of containing the crash and these chemicals in another way seemed to be geared toward getting the rail, the, 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 the railway cars open again, getting the um, rail tracks, rather, open again and so that commerce could commence. What, what, what do you make of some of these um, kind of economic priorities that seem to have played a role in this? Well, initially, the, the reasoning behind the burn-off and the release of the, the vinyl chloride was because uh, it was such a volatile substance and it was just laying there on the ground. Yeah, the, you know, it's not just Dave Sirota. It's uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from Minnesota calling on Pete Buttigieg uh, to do more, to pay more attention to this. A lot of people seeing undertones of class uh, uh, apathy because these folks are, this is a working-class community in eastern Ohio. That's on the left, on the right. Uh, people are blaming the administration for not caring uh, just on the basis of electoral politics because that area, that particular county, uh, Columbiana County in eastern Ohio, voted, I think, 45 percent in favor of Donald Trump. So uh, po politics is inevitably going to be a part of all this. Now, in terms of the, the responsibility of Norfolk Southern, uh, there are calls for them to be liable for the cleanup. It beggars belief, again, uh, that they wouldn't be on the hook uh, for cleaning up this mess. Uh, that was largely their responsibility. And I'm not sure if you saw the video that was uh, found just yesterday by a Pittsburgh station and, and aired. The One of the tanker cars that carries a flammable or a hazardous substance was literally on fire from underneath as it drove through a town uh, on its way to East Palestine, where it ultimately uh, crashed and was derailed. Uh, so a lot of unanswered questions, no question about it. Who's going to pay for medical screening? Should it be Norfolk Southern? Who's going to pay in the long term? 
obviously the the litigation that's going to stem from this is going to stretch out over months if not years uh, but many unanswered questions and a lot that the Department of Transportation and local officials have to answer for. Hmm. As you mentioned, Bree, now even as residents living around the, depart- the derailment area are reporting dead fish, dead animals, the Biden administration continues to maintain there's no problem with air and water quality in the area. After a week of silence on the issue, Secretary Pete Buttigieg tweeted yesterday, I continue to be concerned about the impacts of the February 3rd train derailment near East Palestine, Ohio, and the effects on families in the 10 days since their lives were upended through no fault of their own. He continued, EPA has screened 291 homes and no detections were identified and 181 homes were remain. So his statement comes only after the former mayor was slammed online for his action or lack thereof. Here he is yesterday mentioning the spy balloons. It's had its challenges. Right. Uh, I mean, if you look at what the American transportation systems have faced in the last two or three years, partly because of the pandemic, we've faced issues from container shipping to airline cancellations. Mm -hmm. Now we got balloons. That's right. Um. <laughs> yeah, and that, that speaks to, I think, the fact that the balloons story, you know, was covered r- relentlessly in a, in a lot of media spaces, you know, day after day, what was it, the weekend before last, day after day of in the, the Chinese spy balloon saga. Uh, you know, this is just those images are so startling that people have real concerns. They're noticing dead animals. And, uh, you know, I know News Nation has been on top of this. Uh, there has, of course, been, you know, other coverage elsewhere in the media. But I think it's not maybe as all-consuming as the attention to the spy balloon, which is what uh, people were mocking when they hear, you know, uh, Secretary Pete mention that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's an element of gotcha to um, that clip and the, the offhand joke that he made. But what's what I think is a serious concern is uh, a relative lack of attention uh, to what is most obviously a, an environmental catastrophe uh, and a not only an environmental but an economic catastrophe for the people of eastern Ohio and perhaps beyond. Remember, the Ohio River uh, flows just past that town, the Ohio River, obviously, uh, flowing into the Mississippi and, yes. on, and on and through several states. So, um, you know, the, the Ohio Department of Agriculture itself is, is also investigating and they say there's no the risk to livestock remains low, which seems would seem to be belied by the farmers report of their poultry dying, uh, of fish dying. And we've seen the pictures of that as well. And, and they, they say the groundwater tests have not yet done yet, which again, and we saw that gentleman there on, on the street in the community uh, saying uh, it's OK to come back. Uh, oh, and by the way, we're still testing. Right. Uh, so obviously there is a concern there locally that they're putting the cart before the horse uh, and sending people back before they're even sure themselves are authorities whether or not it is a safe environment. Mike, there's just been so many instances, whether it's first responders after 9-11 being told, go down to the site, it's safe, you know, this mask will protect you, et cetera. And then years later, discovering your whole cohort is dying from the same kinds of cancers at young ages. And then only after the fact, getting the kind of compensation. Well, people would rather not lose their loved ones in the first instance or have to go through the trauma of those cancer diagnoses. So people have been taught by history not to believe these kinds of claims. And and to your right. point about the long-term effects of this sort of thing, I mean, so often, unfortunately, what happens when these corporations 
deal with hazardous materials and there are accidents like these, they're either judgment-proof so that the cost of actually making people whole, the value of all of those lives, the harm to the environment, is so big that it would bankrupt the company. And courts tend to be protective of companies and keeping them in business and not actually making them pay. Or they're able to shield themselves from liability or actually having to pay the judgments the way that Chevron has been able to do uh, with that uh, historically large, what was it, $9 billion lawsuit um, that was won uh, for their uh, polluting in the Amazon. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how this shakes up, but we'll definitely have to continue to follow this story because as history has told us. Um, right, right. There's no easy resolution to this. Do you have a final yeah, word? Yeah, you know, I just want to mention finally, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the history shows us, uh, you look at the burn pits legislation and what mm -hmm. happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've spent months covering that uh, and, the, and, and the ill effects that have been suffered by uh, men and women in uniform that have been exposed to those toxic fumes. Look at Flint, mm -hmm. Michigan. Look at Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. uh, these things tend to, you know, culpability is dodged mm -hmm. uh, and people continue to suffer and the, and the resolutions don't come easily. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mike. All right. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations during the Trump administration and former governor of South Carolina, announced her presidential bid in a video statement this morning. Let's watch. Police in South Carolina are looking for a gunman following a shooting at a church. Several victims. Charles. We don't know the uh, severity. We turned away from fear toward God and the values that still make our country the freest and greatest in the world. We must turn in that direction again. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. Haley is the first GOP candidate to openly challenge former President Trump. She's also the first woman of color and the fifth woman ever to run for the Republican presidential nomination. Haley is a child of immigrant, uh, Indian immigrants. Meanwhile, according to analysis from 538, her net favorability is lower than Trump's and another potential challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, although it is higher than former Vice President Mike Pence's popularity. Uh, what do you think of this? I mean, you've said here to me on the show that you don't think that uh, she has a shot at all. I think she's <laughs> the Tim Pawlenty of Bobby Jindal's. I don't know. She's <laughs> she's not. Uh, look, and I don't I don't have any real issue with her. I just I don't think there is an opening for the message she has. I'm not 
I mean, that was a very kind of soundbitey message. That was a very... Really? Because I feel like I see her lane. I'm not saying she can occupy I mean, I, it. I, I saw her lane in 2007. I don't see what the lane is it, now. It, so based on what she's saying in the ad, making reference to the fact that Republicans haven't secured the popular vote in ages, mm -hmm. and kind of opening with the Charleston shooting, that seems to me to be a straight-up normie appeal, saying Republicans have gotten weird, they've been kind of cringy over some of this Let's race stuff. Well, she can't say that. Political messaging isn't, hey, here's my agenda. It's There's some subtlety to it. I got the clear message that she wants to make Republicans normal again and make it not embarrassing no, for people to be— No, she wants to make them to be, Bush again. Well, that's fine. To a lot of people, that was normal. And I hate to break it to you, Bush, too, won twice in a way that Donald Trump wasn't able to do. I mean, we'll see what happens, but so far hasn't what, been what able saying, to but do. But there's, no, there's just no appetite for this among Republican primary voters whatsoever. Wait a minute, whatsoever. that is inconsistent with the argument that people have been making that Ron DeSantis is the normal version of Trump and that people want to return to normalcy and people don't want the shenanigans. Now, I understand that she has to compete, probably, in all likelihood with Ron DeSantis. I also understand that Ron DeSantis has been doing a better job of both seeming relatively normal as compared to Trump, while also, from a policy perspective, advancing the same kind of culture war issues that made Trump popular in the, to begin with. Trump without the back. And, and it's not clear that Nikki Haley can actually I think Republican voters might thing. very well want Trump without the baggage. That's what we're going to test. But right. she's not, she's not, she's Trump without the baggage. She's not Trump. There's no baggage I, and there's I no Trump. I agree, but this is what she's clearly after. She's identifying the without the baggage need or desire from the Democrat, from the Republican Party and trying to fill that void. Now, something that you've said before, or what we've discussed before on the show, is whether or not this is, in fact, a political run for the vice presidency and whether or not she's presenting herself as a viable, diverse a uh, vice presidential candidate who, again, has no baggage. I think her foreign policy views are very out of step with the Republican Party, with the, the mood of the country and the Republican Party. She's extremely hawkish. She's a neoconservative. Um, if, I frankly think her economic views, which I probably like, are also out of step with the mood of the country mm -hmm. and where the Republican primary base is. I appreciate that she wants to be less weird Republican on, like, whether drag queens are an existential threat to America. I may agree with that. I don't know that that's a, a, a winning message. And then she has all those other, she has actual, genuine liabilities on her thinking on foreign policy and other things. Um, additionally, I don't know how she, where does she position herself with respect to Trump? She's jumped back and forth on that a lot. She served in his administration. She says nice things about him. Then she says, it's time to move on. She says, well, I'm only gonna run if he doesn't run. He's clearly running, she's running anyway. Um, I don't think she's particularly well known even. Um, no. Look, look, no, you don't I don't, think, I don't, I don't, no. Among Republicans, you don't think she's particularly well-known? We forget well, that, I mean, like, compared DeSantis to, isn't even particularly well-known. Sure. Like, if, it's, if it's by that <laughs> metric, then sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I do think that there's an advantage to looking different from the rest of the pack. I do think that her being a woman and a woman of color does signal to some voters that she's, she's going to be acceptable. Perhaps she has a broader reach. I don't think this is true. Like, Democrats have also struggled with this belief that magically, if you just throw a melanated person on the stage, every melanated person in America will vote for them, forget their party affiliation, forget their politics, and just follow in line. But I, I, I get the argument, and I get why she would be an attractive VP candidate. But I also wanted to ask you about what you make of some of the Republicans leaning so strongly into the identity politics aspect of this, not just being a woman of color, but the high heels comment, which seems to be an allusion to some statements she made years ago about her high heels that apparently were met with a lot of plaudits 
and, and she's, and she's known for high heel based remarks. Yeah, if that's true, <laughs> that I missed that. Apparently, um, <laughs> she said, I think this was back in 2012. I wear high, you know, I think the media is a little frightened of women. I wear high heels and it's not a fashion statement. It's for ammunition. Another point, she referred to her stilettos, um, which this reporter would put at uh, four inches minimum, saying that back home in South Carolina, quote, I've got a completely male Senate. Do I want to use these for kicking? Sometimes I do. Um, Look, I've heard her, <laughs> I have heard her speak before. She's a really good speech giver. Um, she's she's going to be good, talented on a debate stage. I'm, I'm not saying she has no political talents. I think to her core, she is not going to be the right candidate for this political moment. Look, I'm interested to see what happens if Republicans start, really start embracing, as they have done, I, I will say, the identity politics when it works out for them and how that affects their ability to criticize uh, Democrats, particularly someone like Joe Biden. I mean, they've always for loved being, to, wait a minute, For being overly obsessed with these things. Because right now, Joe Biden is the most normie white dude ever, and the people right. love him. If Republicans try to come back and occupy the space that Democrats have occupied and lost with for a number of years of saying, I'm wearing heels, I'm a woman, and I'm going to kick them, I'm diverse, all of these kinds of things, it'll be a very interesting contrast. I, mean, I think Republicans do that defensively. They they say, oh, you say we're racist and sexist and anti-gay. It's not an defensive if you're going anti, up against someone like... Here's a gay trans black woman in whatever running for see they can say it's see? defensive but right now you've got joe biden who is the presumptive democratic nominee and he is the most normy white dude who's probably never said the word intersectional his entire life and that's an interesting contrast yeah, that they're teeing up obligated to pick like literally forced nearly at, at no. philosophical gunpoint to pick a to pick a, a <laughs> who, who woman these, for who his these VP. powerful people that forced Joe Biden to what pick a black woman know, the but, media whoever but, was the host of minute. that debate who but was like you're going to pick a woman right to force to to pick a black woman but completely abandon the black agenda black people have no power in this country and Joe Biden knows no, no, it no, which I'm is why saying, he's kicked them in the neck I'm not saying black people so, <laughs> I'm not saying black people forced him so who did the elite media. Okay. Well, the elite media is also routinely ignored. And the idea that there would be any consequences, But he frankly, said, yes, I will, don't hurt me. That was basically his answer. No, he didn't say, yes, I will, don't hurt me. Who else was he going to pick? There was absolutely no issue with him picking Kamala Harris. It was convenient and easy for him, so he did it. If he had any interest in picking anybody else, he was frankly probably going to pick Amy Klobuchar before, before the George Floyd protests kicked off. And it turned out that... Amy Klobuchar had let the cops that killed George mm -hmm. Floyd off the hook a couple of years earlier. So I don't think, I don't buy into the notion that anybody had any power to coerce Joe Biden to pick Kamala Harris, that it was done under force or any kind of pressure. He did it because it, it was an easy like layup. He wanted to pick uh, wanted Mayor to. Pete, oh, but oh. felt like he had to pick a woman. That He uh, sort of said something along those lines. I, the whole, I see my son in him, I... I, I don't, the good son. I, I can't speak to that. I do think that there was probably some significant pressure to pick a, 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 woman. a woman. Just there the optics of it, I think, yeah. would have looked kind of crap to just have two white men, even if Pete Buttigieg is historic for other reasons. But, yeah, I, the, the point of the matter is, I think, at the end of the day, Joe Biden, perhaps to his credit, to at least to his political credit, has resisted the basest appeal that the Democratic Party has used for years, which is to say, vote for me, I'm diverse. Well, and obviously, it matter. he has to. He can't do that. He's not diverse. He can't say that. Oh, I don't think that that's true. There have been a number of, like, white candidates who do a lot of pandering on racial grounds. Hillary Clinton Only walked around talking Catholic about— candidate. Hillary Clinton walked around talking about hot sauce in her purse. You know, all of them have what done is, this— What did hot sauce in her purse signify? That she, she went on a black radio show mm -hmm. and tried to— 
commune with the people mm -hmm. by indicating that she too liked well-seasoned food so much so that she carried hot sauce around in her purse. Which, by the way, I think is a true. It's probably a true thing. I'm not denying that she does it, but it was perceived as a kind of the height of political pandering. You know how I feel about spicy. And Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, if you ever go in the Breakfast Club, I fully anticipate that there will not be a significant amount of simpatico between you and Charlotte <laughs> and the God. It would not surprise me that you have very different tastes in food and other things. <laughs> I will not pander. I will not claim that I get any other kind of salsa than mild. You do well. By the way, when Bernie went on uh, that show, he didn't do any pandering. Bernie doesn't, and, he doesn't pander. In and that people respect, respect him yeah. for it. Everyone anticipates that he's going to eat bland yeah. <laughs> food, and nobody cares. I don't think Biden. Well, I don't know. Biden did. It, it was an example of pandering to pick Kamala Harris. Sure. I, my my yeah, my, my, my issue is that it, I don't think that he did it under any pressure. I think. Look, when you look at the vice presidential candidates, she was one of the. I don't. You know, she was one of the natural picks. I don't think. He considered yeah. a lot of other options that weren't black. I think that he had to, they had to be something. Yeah, I don't think he was going to pick like a straight white man, but there were a lot of other options available to him. And the point of the matter is, he is not an identity politics candidate. He's not. I don't care how you frame it. The fact of a black woman being with BP doesn't make someone identity politics. You can't, like, being black, despite what so many of the commenters <laughs> sometimes believe, being just being a black person does not make you identity politics. Words have meaning. And Joe Biden has resisted a lot of those characterizations. Um, and, you know, racial diversity is not the same thing as appealing or leaning into a certain kind of, a, you know, identity-first messaging that precludes substantive issues. And certainly you can do both at the same time. But what I'm seeing from this ad is that Nikki Haley thinks that there's, like, a real normie lane for her. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that makes her, at very least, a more appealing vice presidential candidate to someone potentially even like DeSantis, who, though he is appealing—he's more normie—has more normie appeal than Trump, still supports a lot of— crazy stuff from a policy perspective that turned off a lot of voters in midterms when you're talking about a lot of the focus on the trans issues and stuff like that. The abortion issues, things like that. Those are those are issues that are hurting Republicans. And having a woman on the ticket who might potentially put people at ease. She is a potential VP pick, but I, I find that as I find that unlikely as well. But we'll see. So what do you think it's for? Just selling books? Yeah. Talk talk show circuit. You know, maybe we'll get her on Rising. <laughs> she can live out her, her deepest fantasy to be interviewed by you and I. I would look forward to it. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. China has accused the U.S. of illegally flying balloons across its airspace more than 10 times since January 2022. The accusation, which according to CNN, was made by the Chinese foreign ministry without evidence, comes less than a day after China said it was preparing to shoot down an unidentified object flying near its eastern coast. The White House denied China's accusation, CNN reports, and a spokeswoman for the National Security Council, Adrian Watson, wrote on Twitter yesterday, any claim that the U.S. government operates surveillance balloons over the PRC is false. Don't you dare believe it. It is China that has a high-altitude surveillance balloon program for intelligence collection that it has used to violate the sovereignty of the U.S. in over 40 countries across five continents. GOP Representative Mike Gallagher, who is chairman of the newly created House Select Committee on China, is exploring an idea to hold a House hearing where lawmakers would participate in a wargaming scenario of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. According to The Hill, Gallagher's office said, quote, we're exploring options where we could do creative wargaming that integrates financial and economic warfare into purely kinetic warfare to tease out the importance of Taiwan. Uh, does that 
give you confidence or cause you fear. Every right? time wargaming is brought up, I just remember who was it that did that wargaming of how to like of whether Trump's going to cause a coup or something. Do you remember oh, that yeah. whole that I whole very that. serious reporting on? Oh, Trump is going to is going to there's going to be a coup because we wargamed it out, and that's what he does in like three out of five scenarios. I was like, are you kidding me? Was any of it at all related to? The happenings of one six, or did they not even no, hit the target. Prior to that, no, no. But did they predict anything that actually happened on one six, or no? I, I can't say. The whole thing was so absurd. Anyway, yeah. uh, Do you believe that we don't have any spy balloons over China, Brianna? I obviously cannot say. I'm not privy to intelligence information. Mm -hmm. However, I don't really need to look at the. That was in the classified documents in uh, were they in Joe Biden's garage or in, in Mar-a-Lago <laughs> that says classified U.S. spy balloons. <laughs> I mean, look, many many leftists. Maybe I can find one and pull it up. But many of the left have been pointing out the maps of military bases that are surrounding China and how kind of rich it is to be complaining about this, these weather balloon surveillance technologies when we know that we engage in a very substantive um, presence mm -hmm. very near these countries um, that we are freaking out about if they just float a balloon our way. And I don't mean to minimize it. Who knows what intelligence the balloons are able to collect, whether or not it's meaningful and whether Who it's knows is a good security. question. And I have not gotten a straight answer. And I've not, I've not heard it on television when I've watched the news. I've not heard it from people I've asked about this. It's not clear to me what I information we expect that the balloon is capturing that their satellites, satellites couldn't don't capture. capture. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand either. Uh, people speculate, oh, don't blow the balloon up because it's going to have bioweapon. I mean, like, it's yeah. just been all over the place. And frankly, those kind of, you know, that kind of conjecture, that kind of conspiracy theorizing is able to exist because there's such a void in our understanding of what this thing is to begin with. Um, I, I don't know, yeah. man. Again, like, well, I, uh, the unwillingness of what I'm saying is the unwillingness of our kind of own government officials to say, oh, yeah, this is what this balloon is. Yeah. This is what it does makes me wonder if that's because we do have them and we do use them. So we don't want to say this. is. Well, we know exactly what it's for. We have our own. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, no, I, I do know what you mean. And I also you know, am sensitive to people who wonder whether or not the inordinate focus on the balloons is intended to draw focus from other less convenient mm -hmm. news stories. And they're literally like the spill a shiny in object Ohio. In, spa in space drawing your eye. Yes. Yeah. You know, to have a story like that occupy so much energy without there being a concrete statement of what threat is being lever leveraged right now. Like, you know, we're talking about something so much without people being clearly able to say, this is why it's a threat. This is the kind of intelligence it could pick up. This is how it could be, pose a risk to national security. Like, I understand, look, if the balloon is able to identify where all the nukes are, they're not going to say, oh, this balloon found all of our nukes. Like, I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But on a, some, some, on a certain level, I think a lot of people have sensed there's something unbalanced about the coverage versus what's the, the content of I the coverage. The volume of the coverage I, versus the content. I think they know where the nukes are because of the satellites. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But again, I don't know if we have the, the picture, but the, our presence in East Asia in terms of actual military bases, if you, if you think about what that commensurate presence would look like if there were Chinese bases in Hawaii, <clears throat> 
in Mexico, you know. Well, in Cuba, you in, remember how we reacted to that? Precisely. Yeah, we almost started, we really did almost start <laughs> World War III. Scary times. Members of the U.S. Special Committee on China are weighing a visit to Taipei to show support of the island that faces pressure from China, according to Nikkei Asia. Re Republican Representative Rob Whitman said he and others are exploring the Taiwan trip, and he said, we know that will infuriate the Chinese, but I think it's incredibly important for us to do that because you have to send the signal that we're strongly on the side of Taiwan. Hmm. The U.S. has begun using a missile produced by Raytheon Technologies to shoot down the mysterious objects that were floating in the sky over the past week. According to Bloomberg, the U.S. Department of Defense is seeking to procure 255 missiles for over $100 million in the 2023 financial year, which comes out to 439000 each. It's a, it's a make-work program. <laughs> jobs for uh, military contractors. Yep, that is how we do a jobs program Economic in the growth. United States of America. Uh, that's how Wonderful. we do so socialism for the military record individual uh, individualism for civilians. Mm. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre weighing in on the recent takedowns. There is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Again, there is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Um, I, I, I'm not. I, I'm just, you know, I loved E.T. the movie, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. Har har! Thanks for clearing that up. Really <laughs> Look, I guess. It. I mean, these have been referred to as UFOs, literal unidentified flying objects, and I guess that's caused some people to get confused. The difference between UFOs and aliens. Yes. Correct. Right. Things uh, can be unidentified flying objects without being aliens. Correct. In fact. <laughs> Potentially right. all UFOs have been right. It's like, not like all rectangles are squares, but not all. You know, you know that. Yeah, There's exactly. a rhombus and a trapezoid. I don't. Yes, remember. all squares are rectangles. Not all rectangles are squares. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's further descriptors yes, there of four-sided. There are other shapes. Correct. Okay. <laughs> You're okay. acing this one, Robbie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, look, I am not mad at her having a little fun at the podium or whatever, but it is. Has she made a statement at the podium about the oil spill in Ohio? I don't know. Like, I, it just it just feels like Has a she? really Let's weird resource shift here, resource allocation, rather, that's happening here from the White House. Yeah, well, they don't want to talk about what's going on in East Palestine. Uh, yeah, she, no, she, uh, so 21 hours ago, she had a press house, a White House press briefing where she did not say a single thing about the Ohio explosion. And it's worth, I've got to land this point, it's worth noting that we just finished having a national conversation about railroad workers not being able to have time off. Uh, part of this, we, we, you know, we were learning more and more about what actually caused the accident, but part of the concern that the railroad workers were articulating is that they had two, they have two people driving these trains, manning these enormous trains, that they are being tasked with doing checks Two people having to walk up and down enormous lengths of the chain to t take care of any technical issues and to check to make sure everything is technically okay. Yeah. They didn't look under the car where it was on fire, well, according to I mean, uh, the reporter. The issue. Do they Mike actually Vicara? have the staffing and ability to do that? They've been arguing that they don't. 
And in fact, the railroad industry has been trying to get them down to one worker per train, not even having like the backup that we expect of pilots to have, despite the fact that these trains are carrying enormously hazardous materials a lot of the time. And so to be having this conversation or for the White House not to be having a conversation about what's happening in Palestine, Ohio, at the same, you know, just a month after Joe Biden crushed a railroad strike that was aimed at basically having more support for railroad workers and their ability to actually take time off and change the really high-pressure staffing choices that they make in order for the railroads to constantly be going, 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 never taking any breaks, having cutting the margins very, very mm -hmm. thin. It's hard not to see a connection between these things, and it doesn't surprise me that Joe Biden doesn't want to face the fact that this crash is the the consequence of a number of policies that people like him have backed over the years, including just earlier this year. Hmm. All right, well, we will continue to follow the story and we'll have more rising for you right after this. A nonprofit Christian organization was behind the $20 million Super Bowl ad by promoting Christianity-themed messages from a company called He Gets Us. Here's a little snippet of that ad. Take a look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see it clearer, or are you deceived? And what you believe? Because I'm only human. He Gets Us is a subsidiary of the Servant Foundation, which has directly funded organizations that promote anti-LGBTQ plus messages, wage campaigns against anti-discrimination laws, and which promote anti-abortion policies. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was among the many critics of the He Gets Us ads that appeared during the Super Bowl, tweeting, something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. Mm. That was a take. <clears throat> so, Jesus, good, no problems there. But I think a lot of people were asking the question, why spend, what was it, $20 million on Super Bowl ads? It feels like it's not really connected to promoting, certainly, Jesus' teachings. Is that $20 million well spent? That could be spent on, let's say, you know, the proselytizing versus homelessness, child mm -hmm. poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And what are the real fun underlying goals here? And it does feel when you look at what the organization actually does, that it's, and it was a, it's got political aims that are aimed at changing public policy, not what people do in their personal lives and what they believe, but trying to affect the outcome of legislation that is going to affect people no matter what their beliefs are in a way that feels a little gross to some people, whether or not you think it's fascist. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty extreme to go in that direction. I, I thought the ad was was fine. It, sort of that kind of messaging is not really something that resonates with me. I'm not a particularly religiously inclined person, but I like the idea that you know we all need to take kind of a chill pill. We're very at each other's throats, very angry. That goes for people of all political stripes at this point, not singling any ideology or group out over the others. That seemed to me, be, seemed to me what the message of the ad was. Um, and if religion or the teachings of 
Jesus can be used to cool people's tensions and reflexive dislike of one another or desire to go yeah, beat each other in the street. That's fine with me, and I don't care if an organization spends its money that way. They can spend it however but that, they want. The, the Religious organizations is, do spend tons of money on charity. But that's and the those point. Is that what this money is being spent to do? $20 million for a Super Bowl ad isn't actually solving discord. And frankly, what was kind of funny was that ad, at least for me, came after that Tubi ad where it made it look like someone was sitting on the remote and changing the channels. The, the ad made it look like the pop-up yes. was changing. And a lot of people thrown people by that one. People <laughs> got, got in fights. And it was like that ad was so divisive because people were shouting at each other like, you idiot, get off the remote. And then it cut to this ad and people's tensions were already high. <laughs> Well, that was a great time for that but, ad to cool people. The, what the, would the, Jesus do in this situation? But the ad was not peaceful. The ad showed picture after pictures of conflict between people. Right. It was. I thought the message of the ad was saying we should not treat each other like that. Right, but it wasn't showing us like coming across you know racial or political lines to like love on each other and support each other. And it didn't start with antagonistic pictures and then end with peaceful solidarity pictures. It was just like straight up antagonism and stress the entire ad, and then at the end saying Jesus wouldn't have wanted us to fight. Well. Sure, but there are things that Jesus definitely advocated for, mm -hmm. ways that he wanted the world to change for the better, and simply papering over every difference as benign, it's, it, it, it does seem to like be a real I mean, the message bastardization of the, the good, important message uh, of Jesus. I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that. The message was literally, remember in these conflicts that Jesus called on people to love thy enemy, to, to humanize the people you're in conflict with. Not that our disagreements no, can be I, easily I papered over. I don't disagree over, with the but. Jesus part of it. I disagree with what the images actually serve to do. And I didn't see any evidence that there was any interest in humanizing anybody. It was images that just were like depicting conflict. So maybe people, let us know if you responded to those images differently. Mm -hmm. um, but that was just what one of what many people felt to be a number of kind of conservative-leading ads uh, that aired during the Super Bowl. The show started off with a pre-performance by Jason Derulo, during which he was accompanied by the Boston Dynamics uh, dogs, those me mechanized robots that are going to have guns mounted to their backs and used in kind of military situations. Um, many people on the, the internet noted that this was an interesting use of military technology and wondered whether or not this was intended to desensitize us and normalize this kind of technology in civilian life. Robotic dogs dancing? Yeah. Oh, I mean, but they're not robotic dogs. They are military equipment that have four appendages, and so we call mm -hmm. them dogs. <laughs> and is that all part of the process of making us more inured to the idea of remote technology with mounted guns that are going to be surveilling our streets potentially in the near future. Sure. I mean, remote technology, the positive of it is fewer lives lost among our forces than the negative is potentially it makes us desensitized to violence and it's easier to just press a button and have it happen. Right. So people who are concerned about the surveillance state and the militarization of our police and all of the negative impacts of that were concerned about that ad. And additionally, another ad that got a lot of pushback was a military recruitment ad using Pat Tillman, who famously left his NFL career to join the military um, because he felt like it was such a valiant fight, ended up being killed by friendly fire. That information only came out after right. a prolonged period of— right but felt like suppression of that information. His personal effects were 
burned. So it, it, people argue that because I thought he, it took leaks to get that information yes, out. Yes, yes. Yeah. That he had been critical. He was increasingly mm -hmm. critical of our military exploits. And at that point, he was killed by friendly fire, which has raised a lot of concerns and conspiracy mm -hmm. theories and whatnot. His family has been very outspoken against him being used in this way. And so for, for there to be this military ad really sat with a lot of people uh, Yeah, that the wrong was pretty way. bad. That was pretty bad. Yeah. So in the, the last thing I, I, I remember people reacting to kind of negatively, although it was maybe mixed, and I'm curious to know how your your crew reacted, was the way the DeMar Hamlin recovery was framed in the context of the Super Bowl kind of early in the show as a heroic Mm -hmm. You know, return. He's doing well again. Isn't the NFL great? We all support each other in a way that some people said kind of sidestepped the underlying issue, which is: is this game safe and our players really being protected? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, that that is the concern. Obviously, the right wanted to take it. Some on the right wanted to take it in a, a vaccine injury. When you look, when you looked at what actually happened, you're like, oh, that looked bad. Yeah. Um, where he got hit. Uh, I mean, I, th I thought that again when. Uh, uh, when the the uh, one of the, the which was the, which quarterback was it? I think it was Patrick Mahomes who took a who, who uh, right before the end of the first half he got tackled and like his foot got grabbed mm -hmm. and he twisted his ankle yeah. and and he limped off and you're like oh that's something as simple as that and, and the person tackling him didn't really do anything wrong no. it was it was just the, even slow motion the way he landed his arm wrapped around the uh, the ankle and well that could be it yeah they, they didn't do it. anything wrong the only person who did something wrong was the ref who made that final call but we'll talk about more, <laughs> more <laughs> I did I thought the call again the passing uh, the, the incomplete pass it was in the first half against the Eagles was sketchy but We'll have to get we'll our own that offline. Out. <laughs> Go Birds, we'll have more for you after this. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he never planned to honor the 2014-2015 Minsk agreements to create peace between Russia, he said in a recent interview with a German magazine. And while he never planned to honor the agreements, he was elected on the promise of ending the Donbas war. In the interview, Zelensky also reportedly accused the West of being insufficiently supportive of Ukraine, despite the billions of dollars the U.S. has sent in aid before the war began last year and ever since. President Joe Biden will be traveling to Poland this month to rally allies one year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The White House announced this on Friday. The visit, which is scheduled for February 20th to the 22nd, comes as polling in the U.S. and abroad suggests waning support for maintaining the costly military and economic assistance for Ukraine, AP News writes. Whew, okay, so... No amount of support is enough. Yeah, I mean, the, the layers of this are really interesting. So... Zelensky is simply being elected to bring peace with Russia and over these disputed territories. The Minsk uh, agreements, the Minsk Accords were intended to do that by withdrawing heavy uh, artillery, having an immediate ceasefire, allowing some self-determination in the Donbass region, which some argue was, in fact, the sticking point and what drove folks to not want to actually, the Ukrainians or Zelensky, to not want to actually agree to this. The concerns being that if there was this degree of self-determination, it would affect national politics in a way that was too sympathetic to Russian influence as opposed to influence of the, of the West. Um, so having that kind of admission that he had no intended to, intention of ever following through with those peace agreements compounded with the complaints about not giving, getting enough Western support when it's gotten more Western support than most countries suffering various kinds of tragedies could even hope to get 
Mm-hmm. It's an interesting. It's an interesting back-to-back story sandwich. He he's gotten. He has the total support of the Biden administration. He has the total support of of, congre- of Republican congressional leadership, at least up until recently, with the, maybe with the election of a new speaker. That's changed. But Mitch McConnell has said his highest priority is arming the Ukrainian defense. He's gotten everything without question. And uh, I, look, I think he's been radicalized by this experience. Clearly, his country's being invaded. Uh, he's had an ideological change of heart, perhaps. It seems to many of us that it would just be wise to have self-determination in the Donbas region and an end to hostilities, whichever way they go. Russia has to abide by that. You know, they pull the troops out. There's self-determination. There's peace. And there's an agreement that the the rest of Ukraine would be protected in the in the event of an of an actual invasion. It seems like something again right along the lines of what Elon Musk articulated, and 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 he's not alone in that. We've articulated that. Yeah. So many people have said, let's have that be the agreement. But what you hear from U.S. State Department officials is that no, this is we're in it for the long haul with the eventual goal of having the Putin regime collapse. Yeah which is a fantasy, or, or at least a very long-term, like an extremely long-term goal. Yeah, and, and whatever you think, I mean, what, however you want to credit Putin's statements or take them at face value, I completely appreciate it if you don't want to. But at the time, you know, around the time of the invasion, he was saying things like, you know, Minsk was the reason that there was this ongoing conflict or the failure to actually follow through with Minsk. He said, quote, we all endured, endured, and endured and hoped for some kind of peace agreement, but now it turns out we were simply fooled, he told reporters, I think, back in 2022. So, you know, just strategically, kind of rhetorically, you're putting him in the position of saying that I was the one that was willing to come to the table when Zelensky is fully saying I was not negotiating in good faith. I don't know that that's a posture that the West wants to be taking on. On top of which, this is all coming after we've had a news cycle about the Seymour Hersh story, about America blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, no wonder that public opinion is turning on Mm -hmm. this. Well, former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson published an op-ed in The Washington Post a few weeks ago arguing that Russian President Vladimir Putin has paved the way for Ukrainian membership in NATO as Russia has shaped itself as the aggressor and Ukraine as the victim. Johnson also argues that if we had, quote, been brave and consistent enough to bring Ukraine into NATO, then this utter catastrophe would have been averted. He writes that this war should be finished as quickly as possible and we should begin the process of admitting Ukraine. Ukraine to NATO now. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of confusion there, though, because uh, the perception that we might admit NATO or admit Ukraine to NATO rather was one of Russia's stated mm-hmm. dis- quarrels mm-hmm. with what was going on. They they said like they were clear about that. We mm-hmm. don't like this. We d- we don't like you dangling NATO as a possibility for them. That is a reason for the invasion. Yep. So to say that. We should have, like, like exactly what he's discussing, in fact, that, that environment where it's being openly discussed, that maybe we should have them be part of NATO, was itself a substantial contributor to the war. Yes, now that they have been, I agree that Russia is the aggressor, they have been I- invaded, and part of the peaceful resolution to this conflict might very well be that the non-contested part of Ukraine has to have some agreement that it's going to be protected if Russia re- doesn't follow through on whatever the commitment is in the peace deal. Yes, I understand that now, because of the situation we're in now. But we, our actions contributed to that situation with the underlying diplomacy he is there advocating. It's completely uh, took us backward, yeah. as, they, <laughs> as they say. I, 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 I don't— I, 
I don't understand why someone would say things. Like, I mean, like, I do understand why someone would say things like this. I do think there's an argument that many people who have been shielded from the precipitating events that caused this, that led to this conflict, I should say, because nobody forced Russia to, Ukraine, uh, Russia to invade Ukraine, obviously, but the precipitating events that could have played out differently, that could have avoided this crisis, have largely been obscured from the public discourse, such that so many Americans believe that even pointing to the inclusion of Ukraine and NATO as a driving, instigating moment for Russia, think of that as a Putin talking point and you're a propagandist and an RT watcher and all of these things, if you even say those kinds of things out loud. So in that kind of immediate climate, I think there are a lot of people who can hear Boris Johnson make an outrageous claim, like if we had put Ukraine and NATO harder, <laughs> we would have avoided the conflict. Yeah. Um, that sounds in some ways credible to the, the casual listener, but it does what says more about what Boris Johnson's agenda is than anything um, about what the actual facts are on the ground. And it does seem, I mean, we cover the story of Boris Johnson, ironically enough, apparently being engaged in uh, these peace talks last spring and the, these Western allies, Johnson and Biden together, scuttling those kind of negotiations. We had a former Israeli prime minister making those statements in, in, a, in a clip that we covered last week, apparently got a lot of pressure and blowback for saying what many believe and understood to be true, which is that the West didn't want to come to the negotiating table at that time when the conflict first emerged. And now we have Boris Johnson doubling down on this bizarre NATO expansion agenda that benefits who exactly? Mm -hmm. Certainly doesn't seem to be uh, the Ukrainian people who are, of course, caught in the middle of all of this. So. Well, we'll continue to cover that, and we'll be back with more Rising right after these messages. On Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced proposals aimed at taking down environmental social governance, also known as ESG, in the Sunshine State, further cementing his anti-elites crusade. While speaking at an event last night, the Yale undergraduate Harvard Law graduate said, quote, we will be standing up for folks in Daytona and Destin, not following the elites in Davos. Santos wants to ban ESG banking, which basically implements a requirement that says investors need to consider the three pillars of ESG when choosing whether they want to invest in a community or project. The Florida governor has consistently fought this idea because he and critics alike say it is chock full of woke political ideology. DeSantis's latest criticisms of elites comes weeks after policymakers and CEOs from around the globe met in Davos, Switzerland to discuss geopolitical risks like inflation, food insecurities, climate crises, and of course disinformation and how best to fight it. And uh, yeah, ESG is a very popular idea among kind of the Davos elite. This idea that um, in investing and business should needs to follow these principles of environmental concern and equity and sustainability, and which I don't have a problem necessarily with that, but they really want to code it into law so that you're not allowed to do business unless you have a stated commitment to these things. Some again, some of these will be fine are fine commitments that businesses should make. There needs to be some regulations, I guess. Uh, but my worry, and the, and the worry a lot of people who are skeptical of ESG would have, is that it's going to look like 
exactly what I talked about in my radar, the, the, the disinformation creep, where, where you're no longer allowed to do business if you have expressed any harmful, toxic political ideas. You're not going to be allowed to have a bank account if you're, you know, if you're someone who said something uncomfortable on Twitter. You're not going to be able to, uh, to do Airbnb or Uber. You know, that, how the, the kind of social credit score idea is, is seeping very slowly and very gradually due to um, COVID, due to disinformation, due to the, yeah. the way that elites are choosing to weaponize these policies against ordinary people. Yeah, I mean, look, there used to be a time in America, in the corporate world, where CEOs self-censored, like self-applied these standards for corporate governance. Um, they weren't outside regulations, and there was a, an understanding um, that comes from the founding, the, origi the original, you know, um, evolution of a corporate charter in the United States, that the government grants your ability to corporation. It's a right that stems mm -hmm. from the government in the first instance, because there was an understanding that in order to have progress on certain projects, you needed to raise large amounts of money that were potentially outside of the government's control to build bridges, roads, et cetera, and that it was a public good. And for that reason, the government was to allow people to incorporate and raise these large funds that could potentially have anti-democratic effects. That's what the founding fathers were so concerned about. Are you going to empower this alternative government that has no democratic oversight whatsoever. But they say, we'll have to let you do these limited charters, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, corporations have grown. Their power has extended over the years. And even from the mid part of the last century to now, CEOs' idea of what their responsibility is to the public has diminished dramatically. And along with that, we've seen, for example, the gap between CEO pay and worker pay go from something like 30 to 1 in the mid part of the last century to over 300 to 1 now. And in fact, I think there's been a lot of public pushback against what the role of corporations are. We talked earlier in the day about this horrible train derailment in southern Ohio that it has the fingerprints of corporate malfeasance all over it, a lack of oversight, cutting corners, you know, um, poor treatment of workers who are taxed with this oversight, et cetera. And so, so much so that I think two years ago, I think it was around 2019 in the context, it was around the time the Bernie campaign was going, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, you know, came out with a statement saying, okay, okay, yeah, corporations should have a little bit more responsibility, because I think they were getting so much heat for having so much in the way of profit and so and returning so little to the public. So this is delicate balance. I think corporate CEOs understand that they exist at the grace of both the workforce and the government who fundamentally do have the ability to extend certain privileges or not to corporations. And the question really becomes, you know, do we think it's a good thing? I understand that things can be biased in what, what ESG actually means or whether it's like woke or not. I think that is obscuring that there are real, there's real exploitation happening here. There's price gouging we talked about in our inflation segment that's going on here. There is poor treatment of staff that is happening here. There is white wage theft that's happening here. And at what point are um, efforts to cast equity measures as wokeism ultimately obscuring the extent to which these are worker-centered policies that Republicans are trying to undermine, or conservatives are trying to undermine. Well, I mean, the media is then playing right into their hands for being by being totally supportive of efforts to stigmatize and ostracize and, and prevent from participating in economic life people who dissent on vaccines and other subjects. 
um, which has allowed, maybe cynically from your view, but has allowed Republicans to capitalize on policies that probably the left would feel are harmful to workers. But many of, like, many of these actual, the actual workers feel that media elites and the Democratic Party are not representing them because they've got on board with policies that, that the, they've said it's like a matter of, of, of democracy surviving, that people are stigmatized and forced not to participate, not to have bank accounts, not be, yeah. able, to, not to be able to work, not be able to drive a truck, not be able to, to yeah. open a business for having opinions that, that fall outside, again, the mainstream consensus, even if the opinions themselves are actually not yeah. fringe at all, I are think, held by I millions of people. I think a lot of, of the COVID policies really were a miscalculation. Yes. I am also fearful, however, that, you know, I hear woke, 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 woke. I, I don't even know what we're talking about at some point. Like, just let's—can we just be a little bit more specific? Because what I'm very concerned about is not woke elites, elites woke. We see how flexible these categories are when—I'm sorry. Ron DeSantis, who graduated from Yale undergrad and Harvard Law, is walking around using terms like elites. Well, what do we actually mean? You're the governor of a state. Is that kind of elite? And is the issue not your elite position, but whether or not you are standing in line with the interests of people who have less privilege and power than you do? Okay, so are the policies you're criticizing as elite, is it a problem because the person has the same pedigree as you? Or is the issue that they are actually doing things that are antithetical to the interests of working people? And if it's the latter, I'm right there with you, Ron DeSantis. But what we're, what we're getting out of a lot of this woke, 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 elite, elite, elite language is obscuring the reality that corporations absolutely should be more accountable to the workforce that makes them so rich in the first place. Corporations absolutely need to be more accountable and pay their taxes and not have people who are the billionaire CEOs like Jeff Bezos paying less in taxes than their private secretaries. But, are guess, but are the policies being proposed at Davos going to make the corporate, I mean, the, the, the corporate leaders are the ones attending Davos. No, so it's not Davos, going to make them more accountable. It's yeah. making the, the workers more accountable to elite opinion. Yeah, I absolutely am not defending Davos. And anything coming out of Davos, I'm highly skeptical of. Because again, we've seen, we saw this with SB, SBF. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, philanthropy in the hands of the richest people in the world is only used as a pretext to disguise the, w the extent to which they're fleecing the rest of us. Look over here. I have a philanthropic organization. I'm such a good guy. While over here, I'm doing a, a high-end pond scheme that ultimately has landed him in jail. So I completely agree. The, the Davos focus, that kind of elite focus, I think is good because it is ultimately the power that's at issue at Davos. The, the, the sheer implications of having that much aggregated wealth and what people do with it politically to frankly undermine democracy is a closed book that's not, that's not really for argument. I, I'm a little wary of like shoehorning this into this like greater issue about wokeness and identity. I'm telling you, some random black person somewhere, some random Latino who cares about their identity and wants not to be marginalized on those lines has nothing to do with a bunch of frankly predominantly white elites in Davos trying to to rig corporations and their uh, corporate law and et cetera in their I favor. I, I don't know what so why are we talking about woke, wokeness and elitism? Well. Is 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 too broad a term? They're that is certainly bringing in too many people. They're in perfect terms, but we kind of know what we're talking we about don't. when we use it. We don't. And the that. people who coin these terms, people like Christopher Rufo, are very explicit about how they are advantaged by the slippage that occurs by, by using those kind of vague terms. He's not. He doesn't hide the ball. I actually respect that he's so open about what his agenda is. And it's the same thing with a lot of these parents' rights. Parents' rights as a umbrella term that is used to advance agendas that parents, when asked about the agenda specifically, 
often don't agree with. And the, the people over at the Citations Pod uh, podcast did a, did a great episode on this recently, that these the parents' rights was a rallying cry back in the 90s. Every time there's an agenda item that Republicans know doesn't actually poll very well, everyone wants parents to have rights, right? So you frame it as that, and then we don't have to talk about book burning, or sorry, not burning, but excluding hundreds of books from shelves. Republicans are now being asked to justify um, uh, um, taking various titles out of circulation that are so plainly like patriotic texts and like the kind of thing that everybody likes and agrees with. And now they're having to deal with the political consequences of being the people who wanted to ban that kind of material. I mean, they and I think we saw that in midterms. You're talking for the, for the ban on pornographic books in schools? No, I think that it's, it would be nice if you pretended that's what the ban, what, the only thing that got banned. Oh, I, you really think that Robbie, look, this is, this is it right here. Do you think that I, Brianna Joy Gray, think that there should be pornography in schools? No. No, but it's a cheap trick because what we're really talking about is whether Alice Walker's The Color Purple can be read in but school that, or but not. That's literally what got banned was those things. Okay, and well, nobody's gave guidance about to shut down. Like, that was not what it called. No, you, so you're you're arguing that there was like a Hustler magazine in somebody's preschool and that, that parents are no, objecting to the, the Hustler yes, magazine I've seen being the, taken out it's of school? The, we, we know specifically what the, the texts are. It's that. It's a it's a very sexually it has a, it's a book with sexually graphic pictures. You know the one I'm talking about. I don't. Well, that's I don't, the one they objected to. Nobody is actually talking about these. Look, uh, if there Google is some material you that you uh, if there's a consensus among parents that should be taken out of school, that's fine. exactly the case. But that's not the point, Robbie. The point is that hundreds of books, including 45, 47 math books, math books in the state of Florida have been banned. Now I have to the focus. Wait a minute. Banned. I have spoken to teachers, math teachers in Florida, about how this is negatively impacting their ability to teach children. That is a true fact. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, take whatever book out, have a narrowly constrained law that's tailored to get what is actually objectionable material out of the classroom. Don't use it as a pretext by saying woke, woke, woke. You're justifying banning hundreds exactly of other texts. I think that's exactly what they did. They did not ban hundreds of other texts. What it be they don't want you to have these specific texts, and then teachers have reacted to this advice by shutting down their entire personal libraries, which I agree is bad, and to be clear, I probably would have done this specific law in the first place for exactly this reason. But Over, it, I think it's misleading to say that the state of Florida ordered math books taken down. They literally have a list did. of 40-odd math books. That is literally what happened, and additionally, over 170 books total have been banned from Florida libraries following these new education guidelines. This is the truth of the matter. And if you are someone who is legitimately concerned about some pornographic material, target the pornographic material. But over and over again in American history, some spook is, is put out there. Oh, this is an anti-communist pamphlet. Let's shut this down. Oh, this is, and the, the realm of who is getting their liberties infringed grows greater and greater and greater until we look up and we're having McCarthy trials and the FBI is well, running ramshod over our country and undermining people's civil li liberties. But this is clearly resonating with parents in Florida. Ron DeSantis it's, is, it's, is- It's not registering across the country. Wildly was Because the, the Republicans were really hurt by what people perceive to be something, book, book banning is deeply unpopular because it's deeply un-American and Americans know that, which is why we call it parental rights and people try to sneak it under the radar. And they started to reap the consequences of that in midterms and we'll see how long that this actually takes us. Mm -hmm. Republicans are overreaching. If they made a more narrow argument, they could be on safe ground. They're doing exactly the same that the Democrats did when they thought they had won the culture yeah. wars and started taking things too far. No disagreement that Republicans are overreaching in certain cases. I think the Florida case has been exaggerated a little bit, but- 170 books banned. I don't, I don't, I don't know I mean, what to tell some you. Some of these books I don't think are appropriate for 
And and do you think all of them are inappropriate? Do you think all 170 books of those? Some of the books they have shown as examples of things they are trying to take out. Okay, of but these that's schools. not the question, Robbie. That you're doing that exact same side side sh sh shuffle. If you think some books would be banned, say I think that these five, ten, fifteen, I didn't say books some be books should be banned. I said I find some of the inappropriate. Okay. Again, my way to run these schools is to let. School, let you decide which school you want to send your kid to, and the school can decide what its library looks but, like. And if you have a problem with that, you can go to a different school. That's not what's that's happening. That's my policy. What they've said is that there is a potential $5,000 fine and five years in prison for teachers who have a certain kind of material that is not defined, found in their classroom, right. which is causing teachers to have to preemptively... It's not. I think it is defined. The, the they whole just don't point like is the it's harmful materials to minors, which is incredibly subjective. So teachers are going overboard... And, right, that's and, what I was saying. And covering up their books or getting them out of the classroom because they have been basically told, if you make a wrong step, I could literally throw you in jail. So the, the stance that conservatives want to have, or at least some conservatives, some elected conservatives in the state of Florida want to have, is to say, we're going to alienate teachers from their students, the people who spend more time with my kids every day than I do. Do we want to say that they are the enemy and that we are going to threaten them with a jail sentence if they mistakenly have a book that... Some censor somewhere decides violates this new law that we've promulgated. And if that sounds like freedom to you, we're living in two very different Americas. I've, I've seen the books they were aimed at taking out, and I don't think it would be controversial to not have them there. I don't think that teachers need to go and shut down their entire personal libraries, but if they feel that way, that's unfortunate. All right. Well, we'll have to probe this <laughs> further at a later date. We'll have more rising right after this. Yesterday, CNN This Morning's Don Lemon said, it's a little frightening, I must say, as he reacted to Elon Musk being spotted with Rupert Murdoch at the Super Bowl. Let's watch. Talk about reshaping truth in the, the media ecosystem, and you see Elon Musk um, and Rupert Murdoch sitting there together. That gets people to wonder. And for some, it is confirmation that, see, that's why he shouldn't have done the interview with Fox. It's all, they're all in collusion, out to get Joe I mean, Biden and, and liberals and the administration. I mean, it is kind of, you know, Musk has sort of positioned himself as this rebel against traditional media sitting next to, you know, one of the great media moguls of our era who uh, has these vast holdings. Maybe most interesting, you know, Murdoch's daughter, Elizabeth, a prominent media executive sitting next to Musk, who is theoretically currently in the search for a CEO to replace himself, which I don't I think she's sort of an interesting candidate for that gig. Were you that surprised, though, to see them sitting next to each other? I really, I, I don't think I was that surprised. No. It stood out, but it wasn't like, oh, wow. No, it seems like the most predictable thing in the world. I was kind of surprised that they actually, like, wow, they actually did it because it's a little frightening, I must say. I, I called out this clip because, I mean, okay, well, yes, they're media, powerful media executives. They know each other, are friendly with each other, went to the Super Bowl together. I, I don't actually think that's a that's insane, why. terrifying news flash that Don Lemon was making it out to be. Um, you know, ben, ben Smith, who was the guest there, who's a, is a very informed um, evaluator, critic of the media, former New York Times media columnist. He started that new media venture, uh, Semaphore. Was that BuzzFeed? Uh, yes, he was, the, he was the top guy at BuzzFeed. Um, uh, and I, I think he, he does very good work, you know, even if you don't agree with him. But, like, what, what is the, you know, it, it's... To me, this was characteristic of the just like Musk panic that has seized many mainstream actors because he's now like the villain. 
So take out the hyperbolic language for a yeah. moment. You know, it's terrifying, that the kind of vague hyperbolic language. And let's ask the question that a lot of people were asking on, online, which is not whether it's surprising that these media moguls are sitting next to each other, but whether or not there's some inconsistency between kind of Elon Musk's self-branding as being independent and different from all the other billionaires that own all the other media institutions and himself. And I think that there's a there there. I think that it's, it is, in fact, not surprising that someone like Elon Musk would sit with other billionaires and other, that all the billionaires seem to see have the same interest in buying up the media and having control over the news that we read. What is surprising is that he kind of, at the same time, maintains this public perception of being independent, of being rogue, as being anti-establishment. Yeah, I, I think... It would be interesting to see who is sitting in the Super Bowl box of, you know, the president of CNN and the president of MSNBC. I bet you would find them hobnobbing with influential media elites, government elites. I completely I agree. I bet, uh, you know, we see who goes to the White House correspondent dinner parties I for these organizations. Agree. It includes government, civil servant, if Fauci is, headlines them, that kind of thing. So it's just not... But that's, it's that's a little the, hypocritical to... Not you, No, 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 but that's, this, this is the question. It, like, again, Don Lemon aside, the problem is, I mean, the, the inconsistency, the, hypo the hypocrisy that people are pointing out isn't that media moguls sit with media moguls or billionaires sit with billionaires or that there's an elite media institution. We're all in agreement on that. The problem is that even though there are these repeated moments where Elon Musk shows himself to be very much in line with what all billionaires do, both in terms of wanting to buy a media organization and having very close relationships, it seems, with other moguls who rightly are criticized for their own bias in their own in, the, in these institutions, like the whole murder. I mean, Elon Musk has has said, in full disclosure, right, that he supports the Republican Party and he is looking to he he, he right, wants you to vote you, for Republicans. It's one thing to support a Republican Party. That's fine. Yeah. It's another thing to say to launch all of these criticisms of the the skewed biased corporate media. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you're literally socializing. It's a big stadium. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of money, there are a lot of boxes, there are a lot of places he could sit. So how can you credibly this is the question that's being asked, how can you credibly launch all of these criticisms of the corporate media at the same time that you seem to be very good friends with one of the biggest, most powerful figures in the corporate media landscape. Yeah, I would say that he probably, from Musk's point of view, he probably agrees now. He's you know come around to being a Republican. He probably agrees with a lot of so the, the corporate media and corporate media bias and, Mur and Murdoch properties. So corporate media and corporate media bias is fine as long as it's right wing corporate media bias. Right. He prob well, I'm I'm talking to, from his perspective. He probably thinks it's not bias, and that's point. the problem for so many people who were sincerely invested in the idea of Elon Musk being actually a free speech absolutist mm -hmm. and running his platform on neutral, transparent policies that protected the interests of people who are anti-establishment across the political spectrum, this is, I'm sorry, yes, it is dangerous. It is dangerous to the interests of people who actually want divergent speech to be protected. It's just dangerous to take a meeting with Rupert Murdoch. Well, I don't know that this is a meeting. It looks like they're just watching the Super Bowl together, which some might say is less more- Less than a meeting. Some might say is more insidious because it speaks to a kind of actual substance, like a relationship and a friendship and an affinity that simply meeting as two hostile parties potentially doesn't necessarily imply. And let's not forget also that Elon Musk was criticized 
people commented on it at the very least, the fact that he was seated next to Jared Kushner mm -hmm. and a bunch of Saudi leaders at the World Cup. So again, like the issue isn't that he is any different than any other mogul, that he is any more bought off or self-interested or corrupt as any other mogul, but that he continues to be able to sell himself somehow as independent, as not like all the other billionaires, in a, in a way that his behaviors undermine. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would describe him as independent, again, because he has strongly identified himself with this version of the Republican Party. Um, I just, I take umbrage a little bit at the amount of shock and danger that the Don Lemons of the world pretend that this represents. Uh, he, Elon, by the way, was tweeting a whole lot yesterday about changes to Twitter, what you would like to see out of it. I don't know what mm -hmm. your experience on Twitter has been like lately. Mine has not been good. Uh, after a brief period of, I, I think, increased activity on the on the platform or like increased engagement with what I like to see and what I'm doing. I feel like it's tanked again. And now the, the recommendations it's giving me, I think are so poorly calibrated to what I actually want to see. A lot of people are complaining about the For You tab, mm -hmm. um, which now, which now I think it shows me content from people I follow, from people they follow. Where it used to, it used to show me that content only if people I follow were liking and retweeting it. So yeah. I might see random content that's just con that's like two, however many degrees of separation. But I think has made the experience way worse. So yeah. I hope Elon gets on that. I, w I was tweeting my frustrations. Yeah, there've been a lot of I gotta say, the changes are not I don't think what people have been asking for. Again, what people no. wanted was transparency about how people were getting shadow banned, blocked, et cetera. And instead, he seems to have been pursuing changes that are offering him potentially financial rewards. He announced just a few days ago, I believe it was, that he's taking away the legacy blue checks, saying that this is going to create kind of a more democratic, flat experience for users. But, you know, in fact, what it is doing is making it so that people are now paying for the same services, changing what was the kind of a social social status, if you mm -hmm. will. Really, it was just, are you really who you say you are? But there was obviously some social capital in having a blue check and changing it into an economic capital. Now, you, you can say that it's only $8, so it's not exactly the hoi polloi versus the peasants. But as someone who both was a legacy blue check and who has always paid for Twitter blue because I'm a professional on the app who needs to post longer videos and stuff, it is really odd to see one's blue check. Again, I'm both. I'm both a paid person and a verified, uh, you know, historically verified, to be have your blue check being infused with all of these implications sure. if you're one or the other by Elon Musk in a way that frankly feels very divisive, which doesn't seem to actually making the, the app more democratic. The user experience is not improving, and we still have absolutely no transparency about how blocks and deplatforming are operating, even as people continue to find themselves on the wrong side right. of these blocks. We have a lot of information now about how they used to operate because of the Twitter files yeah. and such things, but we don't know where the improvements are being made. Right, if you want somebody to pay for verification, like theoretically, I'd be willing to do that, but I want to know what the actual advantages are. I want to know if that means my content is being seen more often. Like, what is that, you know, what is going on? It's nothing. That's it doesn't even need. mean that you are who you say. So people should go out and squat. I've already done this, but you should go squat on your handles because someone could be mm -hmm. Robbie Suave. I don't know what your actual handle is. Robbie, it's that, yeah. What, you know, Robbie Middle Initial Suave and get a blue, pay for a blue check. Yeah. And there's literally no way for them to know the difference.
between you and them, especially if they're already a high well, they do have, they have policies against impersonating other accounts, right. so but maybe theoretically they should take but action. Maybe that's someone that. whose name just happens to be Robbie Suave, and they're going to have to they work have to that out. It. Show their ID. Right, right. So we'll have more rising for you after this. New consumer price index data released today finds that inflation rose 0.05% in January and was up a full 6.4% over January of last year. Notably, key measures like food and gas prices are still up. This comes as a new study conducted by the Conservative Media Research Center finds that last year's coverage of inflation and pandemic economic woes by ABC, CBS, and NBC networks rarely made mention of President Biden effectively giving the commander-in-chief a pass on the issue, according to researcher Rick Noyes. Quote, virtually all of the network's full-length reports included multiple interviews with consumers angry about the high prices plus families on tight budget who are being financially crippled, Noyce continued. But the networks rarely connected the widespread misery to the president and his policies. Meanwhile, over on Fox News Network, evening talk show The Five is cable's only program to score over 3 million total viewers and over 400,000 viewers in the key 25 to 54 age demographic. Yeah, they're Last killing Friday it. night, they had a Super Bowl ad, in fact, uh, in which uh, uh, Gutfield was in a chair, a throne crowned. Yes, that was a, an ad for Gutfeld, though, not oh, for okay. The Five. Oh, yes, sorry. Because uh, but it's a crossover. It's a Marvel so Gutfeld universe. does both. Yeah. Yeah, Gutfeld does The Five and his own show. His show ha often has Tyrus and Cat Timph, and they were both in that ad. Um, it was—I thought it was a funny ad. <laughs> it was yeah, a real I mean, play. it was. I think a lot of people <laughs> were cute. a little triggered by it, but you know, oh. you should celebrate. I mean, they're doing really well. The, the the some of the people who are more liberal leading that I was watching with took a kind of an umbrage, and I was like, well, I think we should be asking questions about why that programming is so effective and why people, mm -hmm. including a majority of Democrats, are preferring to watch Fox News over MSNBC and CNN. You know, instead of, you know, kind of scoffing and being upset about it. But Indeed. Anyway, this, this question prices. about in inflation, it's a really interesting one because we saw how it was kind of focused on and I would argue weaponized. It is a real issue, but it was also being exploited, I think, you know, not incorrectly so by Republicans going into midterms. And then it seemed like everyone sort of dropped it. No one really cared, which is does the consumers a disservice because per these polls, inflation is still, still so far up above last year. Um, and, you know, I actually just recently uh, interviewed Stephanie Kelton, um, economist at SUNY Stony Brook, uh, about this for an upcoming episode of my show that will air on, on Thursday. But, you know, economists keep making this point. Inflation is a producers, corporations raising the price of goods. Now, they can raise the price of goods because the cost of producing those goods has gone up. There has been some of that as caused by the supply chain crisis and the COVID pandemic and all of those other kinds of things. It is also true that there's been a lot of evidence of price gouging where we've seen profits sky high over the course of the last two or three pandemic years, despite the costs of production also going up. So the question is, if we want the prices of these goods and services to come down, are you actually going to address the fact that corporations are exploiting the public perception that there is a supply chain crisis and the reality that prices have gone up to, in fact, pass, extract even more from consumers. And what can we do about that? And other countries have, you know, in Europe, they've done energy uh, price caps and things like that to try to keep the prices down. America seems to not be really into those kinds of interventions, at least not since Nixon did in the 1970s. What's so unfortunate is so much of the narrative has been around this idea that through kind of some kind of magical thinking, 
without actually going after corporations who are price gouging, without actually doing some of the infrastructure projects that can get more things built at home so we don't run into the supply chain crisis going forward, that you can just snap your fingers and make inflation go down. And while I have no great sympathies for Joe Biden, you know, if you're not willing to actually implement policies that go after the root of the problem, simply saying Biden is in office and inflation is up and that's why it's bad, people are not making strong arguments about how it is that these checks that went out two years ago now are causing producers, corporations, for, to have to raise their prices to the extent that they have. And until people can make that connection, you know, our reads that, you know, people aren't making the connection to the Biden administration. I don't care if it's the Biden administration or whatever, but you should be making the connection between inflation and the root causes of inflation. And it's not clear to me that saying Biden is in the White House and therefore their inflation is high is actually helping Well, and I don't think either. the Republicans put forth, I mean, to your point, I don't think Republicans really explained what they would do differently right. to uh, combat inflation, maybe, you know, very, very indirectly by addressing energy or government spending in a really roundabout way. They were applying that they, they certainly didn't make the connection in voters' minds for why their policies were going to result in less inflation. And yeah. I think that that made it not so much a partisan issue. So it was you know, how, how can you tar Biden as responsible for it if you're not going to explain what you did, what you're going to do differently? Right. Um, and what will we you know, do if you, know, And if you, yeah. credit, if you credit, you know, global food prices being too high as, as having something to do with the Ukraine crisis, which mm -hmm. I think is fair, you know, say, say that. Spell out how, you know, this, our commitment there is making, it makes energy prices worse there, which has indirect effect because of the supply chains on food and gas and everything else here. Spell that out. But again, Republic, Republican leadership until very recently was not, uh, was not sounding any notes that were different from the Biden administration. Yeah, Maybe that's changing. But, but yeah. you know, spell it out because people understand how this is, you know, indirectly coming back to them on the price of everything. Yeah, and look, Economists are clear that there are basically four sectors that are really driving inflation, and people are experiencing this in real time, right? It's energy. People know what the price is at the gas pump. It's uh, food. People know what the price is at the grocery store. It's health care. People know about their soaring health care costs. And um, the last one is education. We all talk endlessly about the unaffordable co cost of college. So are people going to start putting to to forward policies that actually are key toward bringing in the prices that, again, Inflation isn't some magical hocus pocus. It's just bringing the costs in those sectors down. What can you do to do that? Now, Stephanie Kelton and others have argued that decreasing health care costs, Medicare for all, would be enormously deflationary. Having free public colleges and, and universities, it's enormously deflationary. Um, frankly, green, green New Deal energy transitions, although much longer, having a much longer time horizon, could be deflationary. But again, we're all doing this like political brinkmanship instead of just take, make, simplifying it and saying, how do we bring down the cost of these sectors that are driving inflation? Yeah, I, I think it's fair. I, I mean, I, you and I would disagree on you know, price caps for private sector products, but healthcare is not a private sector product necessarily. And, and unfortunately, it is in America. Is, is certainly not. I mean, yeah. industries that are, what I mean by that is industries that are, aggressively subsidized by sure. and run by the government should be then affordable to the people yeah, who are supposed food to use is, those services. Agriculture is one of them. Doesn't make, uh, doesn't make as much sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm saying I, I think the, 
the government has more right to set, I mean, the government has to set the price of tuition at some point for universities where it's giving them tons of money. Sure. And then where it's going to come up with some scheme to eventually forgive the loan debt by some, if they pay back a portion of their income or have some policy, what is the incentive then for the institution to keep the price low I agree. at all? It doesn't make any sense. I agree. Those, co those um, policies make a lot more sense in tandem than yeah, separately. Yeah. So they, you know, they need to do something um, like that. But anyway, the, the food prices are clearly bad. I've been noticing it at my, my grocery bills are just obscene week after week um, when it doesn't feel like you know, you say every time you go to the grocery store, you say, "Okay, well, it's it's a lot because this time I had to buy a lot." But next week, you know, I've overbought this time, so next week I won't have to get all the staples. Mm -hmm. But then next week, I feel like I buy less, and it's the same. It's the same outrageous, just outrageous bill. Yeah, it's getting so to the I'm point where I'm feeling it. Yeah, the, I'm not liking it. It used to be, you know, you eat at home, you save money. Mm, yeah. The cost benefit, the cost benefit isn't necessarily working out so well. Um, but we'll continue to follow that story, which apparently the mainstream media has completely dropped now that it's not politically convenient midterm news. Mm. Tomorrow on Rising, the so-called CEO of Anti Woke is considering running on the 2024 GOP ticket for president. We'll talk with Vivek Ramaswamy about his vision for the country. You won't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye.